Good evening. How's everybody doing tonight? Can we kind of turn down the reverb or echo? I feel like a rock star up here. (laughs) I'm not playing to a very big audience, but... Hey, you guys have persisted, and you've made it to the fun part. We're going to get to do the feast tonight. You've been through the sacrifices and all the rules and regulations, and now we're going to get to do the stuff that uh, uh, is really fun. And... uh, for the, about the last 30 minutes, I'm going to get my buddy Andrew Sumney to come up here and talk about what it's like to actually celebrate these feasts in Israel. So we'll give you a little bird's eye view of what happens in Israel. So let me pray for us and uh, we'll get rolling. Lord, thanks for the privilege of coming together uh, to study your word. Uh, Father, it is uh, a freedom that we don't take for granted. Um, Father, it's been an interesting week. And we know that in the midst of uh, all this week, that uh, you're never surprised, and that you always have a plan, and that your will uh, ultimately will be accomplished. And the big uh, question is whether we are going to get in line with your will. And so, Father, just we pray that you would open your word tonight, that you would teach us about the meaning of your uh, feasts and festival, and how they continue to remind us that you are a holy God, and that you expect us not only to bring us and to bring you our best, but also to uh, uh, be holy ourselves, just as you are holy. So thanks for each one of these folks who have persisted through four weeks of slugging it out in Leviticus. And Father, it's my specific prayer that you would bless each of them uh, for um, their persistence of faith and uh, that you would make this book be something that transforms their walk with Christ as we see how he is not only a picture of the sacrifices that were offered, but he's also um, uh, one who has fulfilled the meaning of uh, each of the festivals. And so uh, we're grateful for this time and grateful for each person in here. Amen. All right, gang. Uh, So um, one thing I probably neglected to mention is that uh, um, the... Uh, audio of these uh, little talks on Leviticus is found in uh, the Watermark Media page. If you go to watermark.org and go to the media page, there are actually a list of channels. There's a drop-down box that says channels, and you can find any one that you've missed. And if you've missed some of the handouts, not only do we have them back there in hard copy, but you can actually download all the slides onto your computer uh, from, um, it's under the message notes. If you'll click on the message notes for each particular um, session that you may have missed or that you want the slides from, um, you're welcome to um, any and all of them. And if you have any problems on doing that, my email address is on the very first page um, of the handout. It's uh, underneath the little picture. You can see it here, bcroddy at watermark.org. And um, email me, and I'd love to help you uh, get whatever you need with respect to the class. And I want to start off tonight bringing us back to the journey, Okay. Um, As you know, we've been reading along in the book of Leviticus in the journey, and so we've had some, not only some great devos, today's devotional is written by a pal of mine, uh, Drew Fitzgerald, who 
the first two nights of, of Sticky Pages, uh, was back there uh, helping, you know, do anything that needed to be helped. But Drew has now moved on to uh, Fayetteville, Arkansas, where he is uh, uh, with another guy um, who's actually... Uh, um, a member of the Village Church, going to plant a church in Fayetteville, Arkansas, called the Hill Church. You can go check it out. Uh, I think it's the Hill Church, um, Arkansas, um, dot com or something like that. If you'll just Google the Hill Church in Fayetteville, you'll find it. Um, and so I would specifically ask for you guys to pray for my pal Drew as he starts a church. It is hard work starting the church. Um, Jim Wimberly's sitting right here, and he can attest to that fact. Um, it, uh, you know, he had all jet black hair when he started uh, uh, helping uh, with Watermark. And, uh, you know, now look at him. He looks like uh, he's uh, at least 58 years old or so. Isn't that about right, Jim? Um, so it's hard work starting a church. And so pray for my buddy Drew uh, that he's 27 years old and full of uh, uh, fire and brimstone and eager to go out and serve the Lord. And your prayers will make a difference in the way that uh, the Hill Church gets started. So it's got the DNA of uh, uh, the Village Church and also the DNA of Watermark. Uh, Drew spent a year here as a resident going through our residency program that's uh, helping folks who are interested in vocational ministry, find out how we do ministry here at Watermark. Um, So if you haven't read that Journey Devo, um, go read it. This came from uh, June 25th, uh, and um, this is a journey comment that we got that I thought that just really fit in with what we're going to be talking about tonight, uh, with the feasts and festivals and whatnot. Um, It's written by... um, a woman named Hope, and uh, she is a regular commenter on the journey and a faithful reader of it. And uh, here's what she has to say. She said, just this week I realized the value of a day of rest. I am not one to pause and take naps or just to be still and know. However, Sunday I took time to be still to pause and allow my mind and body to rest. For observant Jews, all work ceases on the Shabbat, for a 24-hour period, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. Andrew's going to be up here talking about that in uh, just a little bit. Um, And she goes on and says, I love this quote about Shabbat. Sabbath-keeping is not about taking a day off, but about being recalled to our knowledge of and gratitude for God's activity in creating the world and giving liberty to captives and overcoming the powers of death by a lady named Dorothy Bass. Um, And I don't know about y'all, but man, if there is one thing that has hold of me in life, it is busyness. And don't you feel some days that, uh, and actually most days, that from the time that you wake up until the time that you go to bed, you are busy all day long. And so it is not an accident that God uh, created something called the Sabbath for his people in the Old Testament. And that was to give them a day of rest. And one of the things we're going to see as we go to the Sabbath years and to the uh, year of Jubilee, that he intended that same sort of principle of rest to actually be given to the land as well. And it's something that we now know today that, hey, that is, in keeping with agricultural sciences, a wise thing to do to allow the land to lie fallow. 
And so, gang, I don't know about y'all, but um, um, we need rest. We need rest in our society. And so I don't know what you do on Sunday, but um, I would really encourage you to take the message of Leviticus to heart about the Sabbath and the need that we have to rest. And not just to rest to take a day off, but rest to reflect in the goodness of our God and to give thanks and to have a heart of gratitude uh, about what he has done for each one of us sitting in this room. So, end of sermon, let's keep rolling. Um, so this week, we're going to, um, whoops, we're going to be uh, uh, covering Leviticus 16, which deals with the um, Day of Atonement, and is really directed to the priests uh, in terms of the Day of Atonement. And then we'll see in uh, 23 through 27 um, some feasts, and uh, we'll also see uh, the benefits of obedience, and the detriments of disobedience. I called it feasts and consequences. Okay, so before we get rolling, though, this is the final week. No more sticky pages next week. I hope you're out shooting fireworks next week instead of uh, being here. And so let's look back to some of the things that we've talked about. And so these are things that you guys know. The theme of Leviticus is holiness. And its purpose is to show um, how... The Israelites are to live holy lives because they are living in the presence of a holy God. The central message, you find it throughout the book, you now know, God's people are to be holy as he is holy. And I still love this uh, Schultz quote, the presence of God among his people is the key to understanding this book. And you know, it's the key to understanding our lives as well. As a believer in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, so we live in the immediate presence of God day in and day out. And so we can take to heart the messages and lesson of Leviticus. God was present in everyday life, every aspect of life, in the mundane everyday affairs, as well as in religious concerns. God was living among them. That's amazing that the God of the universe lives among us, lives in us. That's uh, hard to fathom. Four words we've been using, holiness, worship, reminder, and response. And we've seen this throughout uh, the book of Leviticus, how um, each different, the feasts, uh, I'm sorry, we'll talk about the feasts tonight, but the sacrifices, the ministry to be done, the rules and regulations are about holiness. And they call us to worship. And they are reminders of um, um, God's holiness, and they call for a response from us. The tabernacle, you know, uh, I hope you've got this little diagram of the tabernacle burned in your heads because it's pretty simple, and it helps us walk through what these uh, uh, sacrifices were all about and how they did them. Um, we had the altar of uh, a burnt offering, is a temporary covering of sin that anticipates God's final and permanent dealing with sin in the death of Christ on the cross. The labor is a picture of regeneration, a picture of new spiritual birth. Uh, John thirteen eight, um, as Jesus was washing the disciples' feet, remember he came to Peter, and Peter said, no, 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 Lord. You know, think about Peter. Peter is a guy who several times told the Lord no. I don't know if I would have done that, okay? Um, But Peter said, no, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus said, hey, 
If I don't wash your feet, you can have no part of me. That's John 13, 8. And so the laver is a picture of uh, new birth. The lampstand, Jesus is the light of the world. Uh, the holy, I'm sorry, the uh, table of showbread, he's the bread of life. The altar of incense, um, Romans eight thirty four tells us that Jesus is offering uh, intercession on our behalf. We've talked about the curtain and how uh, at Jesus' death, that curtain was ripped from uh, top to bottom and symbolized Jesus removing the barriers separating uh, man from God. And then finally, we had uh, the Ark of the Presence, Ark of the Covenant, in the uh, uh, most holy place, which uh, was the actual place of God's presence dwelling in the camp. We've talked a, a lot about, we've used this slide every week, okay? And so salvation in the Old Testament and New, people often ask, well, how did people, you know, become believers? How did they trust in God in the Old Testament? And so I hope you guys are now equipped to say, well, the picture of faith is Abraham, whether it's Old Testament or New. And he trusted God, and his faith was credited to him as righteousness, okay? And just as people um, establish a relationship with God by faith in the same way, Old Testament or New, they maintain it in the same way, Old Testament or New, by being obedient. Okay? By being obedient to God's commands. Old Testament, they obeyed the Mosaic Law. They obeyed the things that we are talking about in the book of Leviticus. In the New Testament, um, Christ has fulfilled the law, and so Mosaic law has no uh, sway over us, even though Christ has brought forward at least nine of the ten commandments into the uh, New Testament. Okay, So we still are not to murder or commit adultery or steal or uh, bear false witness against our neighbor or whatnot. But the difference is the source of the commands, and we have the law of Christ. And that law of Christ is also... Part of that is the law of liberty, that we won't do anything that causes our brothers and sisters in Christ to stumble. Okay, any questions about that? That is really important. So whether it's Old Testament or New, the method of faith and of maintaining a relationship is the same. It's trust and obey, as the uh, old hymns say. All right, we also talked about the law. Um, you know, it's the was essentially the constitution of the nation of Israel. Two purposes, one regulatory and one revelatory. And by that I mean it reveals things about the character of God. Three parts, a moral part, how we are to conduct ourselves, a civil part, how we're to conduct our dealings with others, and a ceremonial part about how we're to conduct our dealings with God. Okay? We talked about sacrifices and why uh, sacrifices were required. And we know from uh, uh, the garden that God set the pattern for that. You know, he, uh, the Genesis 3 tells us that he clothed the man and woman in skins. And so something had to die for them to have those skins. And ultimately, we have the sacrifice of the Passover lamb as uh, an example for uh, the Israelites that... You know, uh, that happened just not too long before uh, the people are there in the desert uh, uh, at Mount Sinai. And then we also have God's command, and it emphasizes the, his command to um, offer sacrifices, emphasizes the four words we've been looking at, his holiness, the need for worship, 
how it's to be a reminder to the people and how it calls for a response from each of us. All right? Then in 1 through 7, we walk through the burnt offerings, and um, you should have a chart of those. If you don't, there are uh, extra copies in the back. You can take a look at those. And so without looking at your papers, i got some books to give away here. Um, which was the offering that was typically brought with the burnt offering? Raise your hand. I heard a grain. All right. We have a book for you. Come get it. All right. And so which was the most common offering? Burnt? I saw a hand first here. Yeah, deliver another one. Thank you. All right. The burnt offering was the most common one. It was offered when? Day and night. Okay. I need to come over to this side of the room too because I'm going to just see this side of the room. All right. A couple more questions. Um, which of the offerings uh, required restitution as a part of it? Well, I heard guilt right over here. That's right, the guilt offering. Remember, there was a uh, um, it required the uh, person um, to make reparations to restore what had been taken. Okay, and then twenty percent was added on top as a fine. Okay. And so which offering actually um, uh, provided cleansing and purification so that people could go into the presence of a holy God? Yes, ma'am? Sin offering? I saw your hand first. No. I could wipe out half the crowd here. All right. And finally, which one was the most joyful of all the... Uh, I can't even get the question out. You know, I was kind of itching to say five-point penalty and we'll repeat the whole question. Uh, uh, That guy knows how to pray, and thanks for remembering that. All right. So you know the sacrifices, and ultimately the sacrifices do what? They point us back to Christ. He was sacrificed outside the camp as our sin offering. Okay, he established peace with God. Um, he took away our guilt. He was uh, God's burnt offering. Uh, he is the source of our blessings. And so the sacrifices not only were a reminder of the holiness of God to the Israelites, but they pointed to the one who was to come. Okay? All right, and then we moved on to uh, um, chapters 8 through 10. We actually did this the first week because we were making the connection between what was happening uh, uh, with respect to the dedication of the tabernacle at the end of Exodus and then what happened in um, um, Numbers as they uh, started to take a census. And so how long does the uh, book of Leviticus cover? 30 days. Freddie, I saw your hand and mouth go first. All right, and so as we looked at chapters 8 through 10, we were focused on ministry because um, that's actually what came next in the uh, chronological sequence. And so we had Moses uh, ordain or consecrate Aaron 
to the ministry, Aaron and his sons. And then that was uh, chapter 8. And then in Leviticus 9, we had the beginning of ministry as Aaron started um, um, conducting sacrifices and things like that as the high priest. And remember at the end of 9, what happened? Well, that's at the beginning of 10. What happened at the end of 9? It was the same sort of thing. Yes, ma'am. Well, um, that's um, actually it was Nadab and Abihu in 10 who uh, uh, did something they shouldn't have done, and they were consumed by fire. But something else with fire happened at, uh, at the end. Yes, ma'am. And how was that manifested? Yeah, fire came out and consumed what was left of the offerings on the uh, burnt off on the altar of burnt offering. Come on up. You just thought I was out of books. <laughs> All right. And then in Leviticus ten, we have what's happened to Abihu. Come on up. Don't be shy. In fact, tell us your name. Rachel, way to go. Thanks. Um, okay, so then in 10, we have Abihu and Nadab do things that they shouldn't ought to have done. Um, some scholars believe, a lot of scholars actually believe, that it may have had something to do with the uh, prohibition against strong drink for the priesthood um, because that's what God talks directly to Aaron about right after this little episode. Uh, and remember last week we talked about a key verse in chapter 10 that um, Aaron was told that you're to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and you were to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Okay, And so that's what we start off in doing in chapters 11 through, um, 11 through 15. Okay, and so before I turn to that slide... Who can remember one of the C's? Remember the C from chapter 11? Yes, ma'am. Um, childbirth is close. Yes, ma'am. Clean, clean and unclean. Exactly right. Good job. All right, then what happened in chapter 12? There you go. Will you take this back to her, ma'am? Yep, you're going to take that one. I'll give you one too. Thanks. All right. So, clean and unclean in chapter 11, childbirth in chapter 12. What about in 13 and 14? John? Okay. And then what else in 14? Cleansing. Exactly right. All right. Let's see. Hope I don't run out of books here. I've got one more left. And what happened in 15? Discharges, okay? That was kind of a reach for a C. Who said discharges? Buddy, have you already gotten one of these? Only one book per customer. Okay. No, but I, I thought you'd gotten one in an earlier week. Yeah, all right. Well, then you're, you're already owed one. There you go. Good job. 
All right, so discharge is in uh, chapter 15. And so uh, God is dealing, think about this, we've got about 2 million people living in close proximity. And God gives us regulations to help figure out how we're going to do this and still stay healthy. And then we're going to skip over chapter 16 because we're going to talk about that tonight, the Day of Atonement. And we jump to 17 through 22 and we deal with personal holiness. Let's move forward to that. Personal holiness dealing with food, sex, God and neighbors and other nations. If that's not a handful, I don't know what is. Okay, and then we jump to the priestly holiness as they deal with personal purity for themselves and then also the offerings. And I still love that uh, um, quote that described the sacrificial animals as the priests of the animal kingdom. There you go. Who knew? All right, and so that gets us up to what we're going to do tonight. And so we're going to talk about the feast. Uh, in chapter 16, we've got uh, the Day of Atonement, uh, and it's really from, that's from the priestly side. And then in chapters 23 through 25, we'll deal with uh, um, seven feasts and a couple of yearly sort of things. Um, then we'll take a quick look at chapter 26 with uh, a promise of uh, blessings for obedience and consequences for uh, disobedience. We'll draw some conclusions. Remember that's step five of studying uh, your Bible. And then uh, I'm going to bring my buddy Andrew up here and uh, let him talk about uh, what it's like to actually celebrate some of these feasts in uh, Israel. Um, and he can talk about personal experiences in doing that. And then finally, we're going to close with the most important part. Do I have any books left? No. Um, the last book, or the, the most important part is what? But it's a C. It begins with a C. I thought I heard it. No. cute girl with the new haircut commit commit to take action that's my wife i'm talking to <laughs> okay she got a haircut today um i think it looks really cute y'all tell her that whether you think so or not <laughs> okay um so commit to take action and you remember in week two we uh, um took a few minutes and we talked about the things that we need to lay on the altar before god okay What do we need to sacrifice? What in my life do I need to say, hey, God, I need to give this to you, and I need your spirit to control that aspect of my life as well as all the other parts. You know, we've all got things we hang on to. And so we'll close by talking about that. All right, but we'll never get there if I don't keep rolling. So you've got in front of you a feast chart. Everybody pick one of those up as you came in. There's no way you'll be able to read this up here or maybe the the front row, but you ought to each have your own chart. And we're going to talk about each one of these feasts. Um, And so, you know, gang, just as God considered the Israelites and the priests and the sacrifices and whatnot as being set apart to him as being holy, he regarded certain times of the year uh, as holy as well. And so Leviticus 23 lists at least seven times a year when the Israelites were to celebrate holy meetings, okay? And then there was one that uh, he wanted them to be celebrating every week. That was the Sabbath. 
And so these were times when all the Israelites, not just the priests, were to assemble around the tabernacle area. And so let's start with the Sabbath, because it's really the heart of the whole system of uh, the annual feasts in Israel. Uh, The other feasts all related to the central idea of rest that the Sabbath embodies, okay? And so these other feasts focus the Israelites' attention on the other Sabbath-like blessings that Yahweh had given them. It's a solemn day of rest. You can see we're going to take a look at each one of these feasts, and we'll talk about its purpose, um, when it happens, what the modern equivalent is, the procedure is outlined in the book of Leviticus, and then the significance. And so the uh, um, Sabbath is a picture of the day of rest, and it was a reminder of God's creation, because what did God do on the seventh day? He rested, yeah. Okay? So, um, you know, Jesus claimed that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And so just as the New Covenant replaced the Old Covenant, so Sunday has replaced the Sabbath. And so the Christian Sunday is not a continuation of the Jewish Sabbath. The Sabbath closed the week. It was the seventh day, um, The day of Jesus' resurrection that we celebrate uh, is the first day of the week, and it's the dawning of a new age, a new era, if you will, and it directs our attention um, to doing two things. First, to commemorating uh, his resurrection, and then second, to look forward to the future when he's coming back. And so, you know, here's the important part about this weekly celebration And that is, whether it's the Israelites or believers in Christ, we're not to give God just one day, but we're to give him all seven. And if you think about it, you know, how does Todd close every service? Have a great week of worship. Because it's not just that one day that we're worshiping, it's all seven days that our life is to be a time of worship of God. And so that means that wherever we are, that's our ministry. Our um, workplace, that's my ministry. Our neighborhood, that's my ministry. That's your ministry. Our community, the people we interact with throughout the day, that's our ministry. And our ministry is part of how we worship God, by doing his work in his way to his glory. Okay? All right. So, have a great week of worship has a meaning to us because we hear it. And it's something that the Israelites understood as well, that that day of rest was to remind them that God is holy and in their midst, but it's something that they were to remember not just one day of the week, but all seven days. And so then in Leviticus 23, 4, It introduces uh, seven annual feasts, and whereas the Sabbath could be observed anywhere, the other feasts required attendance at the central sanctuary for participation. And so let's start with the Passover, okay? Um, And it was a celebration of the memorial of the first Passover as... uh, um, 
You remember the Israelites daubed their doors with the blood of a lamb and they hit the top part and the two sides. And you can just imagine what those uh, uh, dwelling places looked like when the Israel, or I'm sorry, when the Egypts, uh, the Egyptians went and looked at all these empty Israelite houses. It was a picture of thousands of crosses. And it looked forward to the one who we know now is the ultimate Passover lamb. Okay? And so it commemorates God's deliverance of uh, Israel from slavery in Egypt by uh, an amazing supernatural act and his preparation for the nation as adoption as his special treasure. And we know it today uh, because Jesus was our Passover lamb. You can see the procedure there. Um, A one-year-old male lamb without blemish, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And uh, the day after Passover marked the beginning of a seven-day festival, which was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this was one of three feasts that required all the adult males in Israel to attend. The other two were the first fruits and tabernacles. Um, in the words of Exodus twenty three seventeen, it said that they had to appear before the Lord. And so it was a holy convocation or gathering of the nation around the sanctuary. And this reminded the Israelites that they needed to live a clean life since God had redeemed them by the blood of the Passover lamb. And the unleavened bread was leaven in the Old Testament. It's a picture of what? Of sin. Yeah. Leaven is a picture of sin. And so unleavened bread uh, underscores the sinless nature of uh, our Savior Christ. Okay? That was followed by the uh, um, Festival of the First Fruits. Uh, It was a picture of gratitude to God for the harvest. Uh, The start of the harvest is probably at the end of the barley harvest. Um, Happened in March or April. You can see the procedures listed uh, uh, there. There were a number of them. And it uh, um, celebrated the uh, um, taking in of the harvest, okay? And so uh, um, the Israelites also, uh, besides offering first fruits, offered a lamb and flour and wine, and all these are representative of God's both spiritual and physical food and drink for his people. And they presented this offering on the day after the Sabbath following Passover, and so first fruits symbolized a kind of a down payment with more to, to follow, more harvest to follow. And you know, gang, when was Jesus resurrected? He was resurrected on the day of first fruits. And he, as the first fruits, uh, is to be followed by more as uh, uh, his followers are resurrected. Okay. Then the Feast of the Weeks. It's also called the uh, Feast of Harvest, sometimes the Day of First Fruits, uh, sometimes uh, uh, Pentecost. We know it better as Pentecost because of what happened on this day um, in the um, establishment of the early church. Okay? It was a celebration to occur when the people had actually come into the land, and it happened 50 days after uh, the Feast of First Fruits. Okay? And so um, as you think about this one, uh, it celebrates the completion of the harvest, 
um, and was uh, typically done uh, in connection with the wheat harvest. Um, as you uh, think about this, remember Pentecost is a, a Greek word that simply means uh, 50th day. And um, it falls into the spring harvest 50 days after Passover. And so it's, think about it, it's the day after the completion of seven weeks. Okay? And so if you think about this, uh, uh, seven was important. Um, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, it was important in the Old Testament, the number seven. And so the people offered the first fruits of their spring harvest in thankfulness for um, God's provision for both their physical and spiritual needs. Okay, and so all these uh, festivals are celebrated uh, during the uh, uh, springtime, if you will, into um, the early part of June. And then we have a big gap. And the next three festivals all occur in the seventh month, okay? And so um, the final three festivals occur then, and, you know, the seventh day was important to the Lord, the seventh week was important to the Lord, and the seventh month was important to the Lord. And it starts with uh, the Feast of Trumpets, which was celebrated on the first day of the seventh month. You may hear, hear some of your Jewish friends call it Rosh Hashanah celebrated today by um, uh, people uh, uh, who are observant Jews. And um, the Israelites would blow the trumpets on the first day of every month, but on this month the trumpets signaled the Feast of Trumpets as well as the beginning of a new month. Okay, After the Babylonian captivity, and that's something that happened to the Jews in about 586 B.C., they were away from the land for 70 years, and uh, um, after they returned from the Babylonian captivity, uh, the, they instituted the Jewish year to begin on the day of the Feast of the Trumpets. And so it's also known as the Jewish New Year. Okay? Ram's horns were blown. It's called a shofar. And uh, these were huge horns that the priests would blow, uh, and they could be heard from a long ways away. And they called the people to turn their attention to God, to preparing for the festivals, and to prepare for a time of worship. The next one is the Day of Atonement. Um, it's mentioned both in uh, Leviticus 16 and then again in Leviticus 23. It's also known as uh, Yom Kippur. I'm sure you've probably heard uh, Jewish friends uh, talk about celebrating Yom Kippur. And uh, um, it was to cleanse the people from all their sins. It's to make atonement not only for the people, but also for the sanctuary, for the tent of meeting uh, uh, as they had the tabernacle, for the altar, for the priests and all the people. It was the tenth day of the seventh month, and it was the one day of the year in which the high priest entered the most holy place to offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And uh, if you go take a careful look at Leviticus 16, it lists at least 20 steps that had to be performed as a part of the Day of Atonement that the priests were to uh, carry out. Okay? Um, and it's interesting that um, this was a day of fast rather than feast. And the people were to humble 
or deny themselves. In fact, uh, Leviticus says you shall afflict yourself, which involve fasting and abstaining from their normal pleasures and comforts. Uh, God permitted no ordinary work on this day to teach the Israelites uh, that the yearly removal of their sins was entirely God's work, and they had nothing to do with it, okay? They simply showed up, and God took care of cleansing them. They contributed absolutely nothing other than fulfilling the procedures for this that the priests were to carry out. But it was a reminder that they were to do no work because God was going to do the work. And so what does that sound like for you and me? Well, it sounds like our salvation. You know, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says that uh, for by grace we're saved, and that not um, it's a gift of God, and that not of ourselves, not of, as a result of works, lest any man should boast. I'm sure I butchered that, but uh, um, the bottom line is that we have nothing to contribute to our salvation, just as the Israelites had nothing to be able to contribute to the cleansing uh, of their sin. And the good news is that Jesus did it all, and we simply have to believe. Okay? We have nothing to bring to the table. And the good news about that is that if we did nothing to earn or deserve our salvation, what can we do to lose it? The short answer is nothing. And that should be a comfort to you because you, God wants us to know that our salvation is secure. He wants us to have confidence in our salvation, that we can't lose our salvation. We didn't do anything to earn or deserve it. We can do nothing to lose it. Are we good on that? Any questions on that? All right, and so the sacrifices that the priests made on this day atoned for all the sins uh, that the Israelites uh, uh, had committed that had not been covered by any other sacrifice, okay? But what was the deal with the Day of Atonement? It was temporary, and it had to be done year after year after year. And what's different about the sacrifice that Christ offered is that his sacrifice was offered once and was good forever. That is a superior sacrifice. And, you know, that's one of the things that the book of Hebrews talks about. We talked about that the first night, how the book of Hebrews, uh, uh, one of the themes of it is the superiority of Christ. And he offered a superior sacrifice because it only had to be offered, the sacrifice of his life only had to be offered once. All right, the next one, uh, next feast was the Feast of Booths. It was also called the Feast of Tabernacles or Shelters. This was to give thanks and uh, celebrate the conclusion of the harvest and to remember that Israel had dwelled in booths or tents in the wilderness. It was celebrated uh, um, for a week, uh, about five days after the Day of Atonement. Um, you can read the procedures there uh, in your little chart. And uh, people actually built shelters out of uh, branches and uh, lived in them for seven days to commemorate this. And Andrew's going to talk a little bit about this. And it was a reminder of God's guidance and provision even in the wilderness. And that's a picture of grace. It was a very joyous occasion, Okay. And it opened and closed with a Sabbath, uh, a time of joy because God had provided atonement for those sins. 
And it was actually the only festival in which God commanded the Israelites to rejoice. And it revolved around the harvest, the, the completion of the fall harvest. Okay? In fact, we have that in our background. What do we call that celebration? Hmm? Thanksgiving, exactly. Okay, the Puritans who instituted Thanksgiving modeled it on the Feast of Booths. All right, so now we've completed the seven feasts, and we want to uh, cover two more things uh, that are celebrations. And so chapter 25 concludes the laws that uh, the Israelites had been given on Mount Sinai. And the central theme of this last set of instructions is that of restoration. And so we have two things we want to talk about there. First is the Sabbath year and then the year of Jubilee. Chapter 25 verses 1 through 7 covers the Sabbath year and then the rest of the chapter deals with the year of Jubilee. Okay? And so, it's interesting that uh, um, Israel's life was to be governed by a pattern of seven-year periods, uh, Sabbath years, okay? And after seven periods of seven years, in the year of Jubilee, there was to be a total restoration for God's people, okay? And so, as God ordered the people to rest every seventh day, the Sabbath, he also ordered to let he ordered them to let the re, the land rest every seven years, and then after seven years of uh, Sabbath years, we have the year of jubilee. And so the years uh, the crops that grew up during the sabbatical year were um, an offering to Yahweh, and God told them not to harvest those crops, but that He would give them abundance to be able to eat during that year. And the things that came up during that year uh, were not to be harvested, but were to be made available for the slaves, the hired people, foreign residents, aliens, uh, and even cattle and animals to eat freely of what belonged to God. God was making the point that the land is his, and we need to, as good stewards, to allow it to rest. The Israelites did, okay? And he makes the point that um, he's concerned about you know, the um, as Luke 19.10 says, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He's concerned about the slaves and the hired people and the foreigners and the aliens and whatnot. He cares about the marginal people of society. And the things that God cares about, we're to care about. And so that's why this church is concerned with an external focused ministry and is part and parcel of everything that we do so that we equip you through the equipping ministry to be the hands and feet of Christ out reaching a, a lost and fallen and dark world. God cares about those people and he wants us to care about them. Okay? So... In the overall plan, the Sabbath year um, was to be a replication for God's provision for uh, man in the Garden of Eden. When God created people and put them in the garden, Adam and Eve, um, they worked, but that was not for their livelihood. I'll get to you in just a second. Um, 
They weren't to work for their livelihood. That came about as a part of the curse, okay? They were to work, but God was going to provide for them. And uh, um, they were to worship and depend on God to provide for them. And so also in the Sabbath year, each person was to share equally in all uh, the good of God's provision. Okay? And so after seven uh, Sabbath year rests, you'd have the year of Jubilee, and it did for the land uh, what the Day of Atonement did for the people. And it was during this year that God brought the land back into the condition he intended for it. And it's interesting that the priests announced the year of Jubilee on the Day of Atonement, confirming the relationship that the Day of Atonement was to cleanse the people's sin, and the year of Jubilee was to give the land complete rest. Okay? And so they were to observe the year of Jubilee every 50 years, and so the year following seven seven seven-year periods. And uh, on the day, the day of atonement of that year, the priest blew the ram's horn to announce the beginning of the jubilee year. There was no sowing or reaping to take place as during the sabbatical years. And God promised to uh, provide for his people as they rested in response to his uh, promise. But you know what's interesting is that the jubilee year is not mentioned uh, again outside of the Pentateuch. Okay, outside of the first five books of the uh, Old Testament. And you know, there's real no direct biblical evidence that uh, uh, in Israel's history, the uh, year of Jubilee was uh, actually observed, which it may well have been, and it was just a normal part of Jewish society, and so they didn't make a specific mention of it. But you know, we do know that the people failed to observe the Sabbath years, and um, they spent a year in exile in Babylon uh, for each one of the Sabbath years that they had failed to uh, um, honor and celebrate. There were 70 of them. They were in exile for 70 years. So we really don't know whether the year of Jubilee was in fact celebrated. Okay? But as we stop and think about each one of these feasts, I think it's important for us to remember that each one of them points to the Messiah in some way or another and has been fulfilled or will be fulfilled uh, by uh, Jesus in some way. The easiest one is the Passover. He was indeed our Passover lamb who was shed for our sins. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Um, he, was, he lived a sinless life. And so the Feast of Unleavened Bread points to uh, the Messiah's sinless life, making him the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Um, He was resurrected as the first fruits of the righteous. And interestingly, Jesus was resurrected on the very day of the first fruits celebration that year. And it's one of the reasons that Paul refers to him in 1 Corinthians 15.20 as the first fruits from the dead. The Festival of Weeks, Pentecost, occurs 50 days after the beginning of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, and it points to the great harvest of souls and the gift of the Holy Spirit for both the Jews and Gentiles who would be brought into the kingdom during the church age. You can take a look at that in Acts 2, because on the day of Pentecost, um, that most scholars look at the establishment of the church as uh, uh, dating from that day, You see, God poured out his Holy Spirit, 
and um, um, three, some 3,000 Jews responded to Peter's great sermon uh, that's recorded in Acts 2. And so as each one of the four spring festivals, spring feasts, were fulfilled literally and right on the feast day in connection with Christ's first coming, many believe that the, fall, the three fall feasts will likewise be fulfilled literally in connection with the events surrounding Jesus' return. And it's interesting to note there's a gap between the first four celebrations and the last three celebrations. And many believe that this gap is a picture of uh, what um, uh, scholars call the church age, the time between the establishment of the church at Pentecost and the day of removal of the church. In fact, the Feast of Trumpets... The first of the fall feasts, many believe that it points to the rapture of the church when Jesus will appear in the heavens as he comes for his bride, the church. And you know, it's interesting if you look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and uh, 17, right in there, um, the rapture is associated with the blowing of a loud trumpet. And the Day of Atonement, many believe that this prophetically points uh, points to the day of Jesus' second um, coming. His return to earth, because it will be a day of atonement for the Jewish remnant when they look upon him whom they have pierced and repent of their sins and receive him as their Messiah. And then finally, the uh, picture of uh, the festival of booths or tabernacles, many believe that that day points to the Lord's promise that he will again tabernacle or dwell with his people. If you read uh, Revelation 21 3, uh, it says that the dwelling place of God, um, and literally the word they use is the word for tabernacle, is with man. And so God has promised that he will once again in the future dwell with man. Okay? So we've sprinted through these feasts. But the good news is I'm going to get Andrew up here in just a minute. I've got a couple of things to do before I do. And we're going to have a chance to kind of uh, talk about and flesh these out in connection with how they're celebrated today. I had a question back here. Um, the question was that uh, uh, in connection with either the Sabbath year or the year of Jubilee, when they're not actually out there harvesting, planting, and harvesting crops, how are they going to eat? Well, God uh, told Moses that he would provide additional uh, crops in year six for year seven, and actually enough so that they would have um, something to eat in year eight when they're planting, Okay. And so I think the same principle holds for the year of Jubilee as well, that God would, be, um, uh, would fulfill the promise to take care of them, to v- provide provision for the uh, actual um, needs during uh, not only the Sabbath year, but the year following until they had planted again and raised another set of crops. It's a great question, uh, but I think that there is an answer in Scripture on that. All right, I want to spend just a second on Leviticus 26. And that's a chapter about obedience and disobedience. 
And it just struck me about how nicely um, the blessings for obedience paralleled the levels of discipline for disobedience. And you have here and you have in your slides uh, a slide on this, but there were blessings of rains and production and prosperity and peace in the land and victory in battle and uh, that they'd be fruitful and multiply and that God would be present in the land. Those were the blessings for obedience. And there were what I see is five different levels of discipline that got more and more severe and started with disease and defeat and then economic disaster and then natural disaster and then finally military conquest and exile. And so, gang, you know, it is not, as we see it starkly laid out in the pages of um, Leviticus 26, it's not a hard decision about what we want to be. And so why is it so hard sometimes to be obedient? Well, you know, Scripture tells us that our hearts are desperately wicked and that any time we have an opportunity, we're going to choose the wrong thing. And so that's why we call all of us to be spiritually disciplined by studying uh, God's Word, by memorizing Scripture, by praying, by doing the spiritual disciplines that will uh, make uh, that will help us make the right decisions as an instinct. You know, athletes can tell you, you need to train muscle memory. And we need to, as a body of believers, train the muscle memory to make the right decisions, to be willing to pause before we open our mouths. Man, that's the hard one for me. You know, I want to just fire off an answer and blow somebody away instead of saying, Lord, help my words be kind and gentle here but also filled with truth uh, as I speak it in love. And so we are called to seek obedience as believers in Christ by building spiritual disciplines that train our lives to be a reflection of Christ, to become more like Christ, to be conformed to the image of Christ so that we will make decisions like he makes decisions. And so before I get Andrew up here, I want to draw some conclusions. Katie, I just turned the slides off. If you'll turn them back on. up, oh, there we go. Bless you. Um, so here are 10 lessons I learned in Leviticus. And I would really encourage you to uh, sometime in the next week to sit down and think through what you've studied here in the book of Leviticus and draw your own conclusions. But here are mine. God is holy. I mean, that's not a hard one to see. God calls us to be holy. You remember how the very first um, words of the book of Leviticus, and he called. And God is still calling us to be holy. How about number three? God cares about the details. And he gives us plenty of details because he wants to be involved in every aspect of your life and my life. God dwells among his people. Obedience is required to maintain a vibrant relationship with God. That's how we maintain our relationship, by being obedient. Number six, God calls his people to be priests, to be his representatives. New Testament word is for us is to be his ambassadors. And he calls us to be a holy nation. Um, I don't think we're doing so well in that. Number seven, God's justice must be satisfied. Why? Because he's holy and righteous. 
Number eight, the sacrifices, regulations, and feasts were continual reminders of God's presence and holiness and man's need for him. Number nine, Leviticus reminds us that our responsibilities to God and to our fellow man are always, always connected. There is no secular spiritual divide. We are about being God's people, and so we are in full-time Christian service, regardless of whether you are a banker or a doctor or uh, working at a filling station or whatever you're doing, you are in service of the king. And so there's no spiritual secular divide. We are always uh, at work in serving God. And our responsibility is first to God and then to our fellow man. And we are to speak the truth, but we're to speak it in love. And then finally, how about this one? The way God's people live their lives is supposed to show the world what God is like. Now, I don't know about you, but that one went from preaching to meddling. Because, you know, there are some days, and uh, even on my good days, there are some times in those days where I go, hey, if I'm the only Christian that people saw, they would run and go the other way. But that's not what we're supposed to do. We are to be the hands and feet of Christ wherever we go. And we're to have people look on us and go, hey, I can see because of that guy's life or that gal's life that they know something about a one who is different. Their God is someone who has changed their um, ways. And that may be part of your story, that you know, there may be people in your lives who have said, you're not the same person that you were in high school or in college or whenever. And if you're doing that, then people are noticing that there is something different about you because of your relationship with God. And if they aren't, then take that to heart. All right, Andrew, let's see if I'd gotten everything done I wanted to do. I think it's time, buddy. Come on up here. Y'all remember my pal, Andrew Sumney? Everybody gets a, you get a hand for coming up here. He hadn't even said anything. Um, Thank you. Andrew, uh, as you guys will remember, um, um, is a Watermark member. Uh, He's got five kids. We've got five kids, yeah. Five kids. Got at least a couple of them sitting over here. And uh, he has a master's in Jewish and Christian studies. He's spent uh, over a year living in Israel. And, buddy, uh, my first assignment for you tonight is to just talk a little bit about the Sabbath and uh, what that is like uh, as it's celebrated in Israel today. Okay, I, I do have to fulfill a quick promise. All right, uh, come on. Two of my five kids are here, and my daughter asked me to uh, say their names. Awesome. Uh, because they're all Hebrew names. It's Benjamin and then Noam. Those are my two oldest sons. And Noam is the masculine of Naomi, which means pleasant. And then Eden, which is the Hebrew pronunciation of Eden, same, same spelling, and means paradise. And then Leora, which is light unto me, and Asher. Uh, which means joy or blessed or happiness. And, and we, we picked up those names when we lived a uh, year in Israel. So um, that's kind of why I'm Gang, talking about that. stand up for so us. The, that's them right there. 
So, um, actually, we still take time to, you know, not every week, but, you know, when we can, we we sometimes invite people over, but we do Shabbat, uh, Friday night's uh, dinner. And one thing that both my wife and I were really challenged when we lived there was the intentionality and the lessons that uh, that the Sabbath, the rest, uh, is. And, and, and we learned a lot. So I think to, to begin talking about the Sabbath, if you wouldn't mind joining me, my, this is also my kids, so there was two requests my kids asked me to do. Would you sing with me Shabbat Shalom? And it actually starts tomorrow night, but um, it's a song Shabbat Shalom, and it has two words to it, and it's called... And the two words are Shabbat and Shalom. Okay, are you willing to sing with me a little bit? Okay, ready? It goes like this. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat 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 Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat. And you're supposed to hit your tables really hard, okay? So that's the way it goes. So we're going to hit the, ta- the tables because it's very loud. It's very joyous. It's, it's, uh, it's very different. So ready? Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat, 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 shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat, 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 shabbat shalom. Shabbat, shabbat. Shabbat Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat Shabbat, Shabbat Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat 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 Shalom. So when you do that with yeah. the kids, all right. <laughs> uh, you do it in Israel. The, the the glasses of wine are shaking, and it's about to fall over. And you realize, wow, resting is a joyous occasion. It's not something where you go in in the intentionality of. Realizing that it's an actual attack on where we tend to put our self-worth. And even on Shabbat, you're not even supposed to talk about your work. So you're supposed to spend a day with others and not talk about what you work and what you do and how you can be productive and so on and so forth. But you're supposed to rest and enjoy the things of God, enjoy the Bible, enjoy those things. And if you think about it, that's an actual attack on where we tend to want to put our self-sufficiency in our lives. And so it, it became a kind of a reminder of that. And it, I mean, it can get really detailed. I mean, uh, some of the more Orthodox Jews that we knew, they, they, they have a special button or they unscrew the light bulb in their refrigerator. Uh, you stay at hotels and they, you know, have a elevator that stops automatically on every floor. And uh, so when you, you know, if you're going to ride the elevator on Shabbat, you have to ride every floor. That's why there's not a lot of really tall buildings in Jerusalem. Um, and, you know, and I, you think that's just absolutely crazy. And I do a little bit. Um, but one of the things that I learned was is that they're actually, it's not really about effort, the rest it has nothing to do with effort. I can rearrange my furniture in my living room. I can sweat and that kind of a thing, but I can't flip on a light switch. Why? Because you're resting from work, which reflects what God did during creation. So when he says, let there be light, you want to refrain from an act similar to that in remembrance of Sabbath. That was the thinking of that. So it's constantly a very... Uh, strong thinking of of what it is to to remember God and what He has done for you, and it's not your own effort 
uh, that uh, is a blessing. It's, it's purely his blessing. So, and that kind of just showed grace and everything else. So it was really interesting. Do you want to go on to the, the sure. next one? Or do you, any questions about Shabbat or Sabbath or anything else? Can we go on to... If, if you've never had the opportunity to experience um, a Shabbat um, meal... Um, you and you them? have the opportunity, okay. um, do it. Okay. Yeah, I, I was just scared that he was inviting all of you to my house. Actually, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, um, it would be funny. It's not super authentic. You know, we, we turn on and off lights and, and everything else because that's who we are. But, um, but, you know, you sit there at the Sabbath table, and all of a sudden it's just boom, 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 if you know Scripture, because you realize so much of Jesus' teachings are right there on the table. You know, don't cover the light, and don't, you know, the bread is there, and all of the things are there. You could just see how those teachings he just gave over and over and over and over, and that's why they remembered him really well and were able to write them down. Um, and so that was just an incredible experience. But in living in Israel on Sabbath, you know, no one, no one drives, no one, you know, the kids are out in the middle of what, what yesterday was a busy street riding their bicycles. Uh, and it's just really cool, uh, to see that. And, uh, you know, uh, similarly, just the preparation for all the feasts. Uh, I, I often say, you know, Orthodox Jews or observant Jews are kind of God's show and tell. Because you can just sit there and watch them and learn and, and, and hear echoes of the Bible. You hear echoes of what Jesus has done. And, and that's what Passover. Passover is an incredible season in Israel and Jerusalem. Uh, first of all, the preparation for Passover. They go through their houses very meticulously to remove all the leaven. And to clean it. It's like, I mean, this is where we got spring cleaning from or something. Because they go through every little nick and cranny, get rid of it. And then they kind of keep a little bit of yeast, you know, and bread in in one corner of a cabinet ready for the last day. And then the, the father takes the oldest son, takes that last bit of yeast, takes it out, and they burn it. And they just burn all the yeast out of the house, and now sometimes they sell it, and then they can buy it back. There's some loopholes there that uh, were quite interesting. But, um, but the idea is, you know, you take it, you get it completely out. So when you read those scriptures, get rid of the old yeast. And uh, when Paul talks about when you celebrate the feast, because uh, in the first century, a lot of the, the believers were, you know, were Jewish, and they continued, you know, celebrating because it was like Christmas to them. I mean... For us to say, oh, no, we're not going to do Christmas, that would just be awkward. And so they continued to enjoy it. But what he was encouraging is to really understand it from a real depth. And if you have a chance ever to go through a Passover Seder, a Pesach Seder, uh, with, with someone who's Jewish, it is, it is incredible. Uh, hopefully it's in English and in Hebrew. If it's all in Hebrew, sometimes you can get lost because um, if you don't know the language, right? Um, but... Uh, one of the aspects of going through the Seder is just the salvation of God. Over and over it's highlighted. And why did he do it? Were you doing anything? No. It's all about God. It's all about his salvation. And one, I remember sitting there and going through it the first time and I was like, there is a key person missing. It's all about the exodus. There's the plagues of Egypt, everything else. But there's a key person missing in the Passover Seder. And it's Moses. And so I asked, and there was a Jewish, uh, uh, he wasn't even a believer. And I said, uh, well, why is Moses missing from the Passover, Passover Seder? That makes no sense. And he goes, because it's actually 
looking forward to the Messianic era. And so I was like, okay, I could agree with you on that. <laughs> and, and, you know, we just had that moment. And so that is Passover. It's remembering salvation when you have done nothing to deserve it. You were slaves in Egypt, and, you know, you dip your fingers. And then also, uh, Paul talks about when you have the feast uh, uh, in Corinthians, I think it's 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 7 was where he said, when you celebrate the feast. Um, But then uh, 1 Corinthians 11, he talks about the... uh, When you celebrate Passover, you know, don't, don't get drunk, because, you know, or when you celebrate the Lord's, uh, when you drink the cup and eat the bread, you know, don't get drunk. And you're thinking, okay, well, yeah, that, that's a good advice. But you don't understand. You're usually required to have, by that moment, by the time of that part of the Passover Seder, you've had four big cups of wine. So, so he's like, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe don't fill that glass. I mean, you're supposed to fill it, fill it, but maybe don't fill it up all the way is kind of the encouragement. You could see him do it. It was very practical because you could imagine these, not, uh, these Gentiles who are used to festivals and celebrations where they get drunk during them. I mean, that was what you were supposed to do. And here they are, you know, and they're maybe having four glasses of wine or five glasses of wine. And, you know, they'll, they'll just fill it up. So, you know, some of these things are very practical in how the early days when the, uh, the Gentiles and the Jews were, were coming together and worshiping and, and coming to know who Jesus is and what he did for them. And then the next one, and a lot of people mix these two together, unleavened bread and Passover are two separate festivals. They just kind of run together because it's Passover evening, and then the next day begins the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or Ha Matzaot, which uh, it was Matzah, Matzaot, Unleavened Bread. And um, that is where you just don't eat yeast for a week. And the first week I was in Israel, first time I was in Israel, I didn't quite realize what that meant. You know, everything has yeast. And, and they, they, what they do is they actually block off with plastic whole sections of the, of the grocery store. So here I am working there. I'm doing work with a Christian organization. And, um, and I go for my lunch break and I go to the grocery store. And I don't know what to buy. I mean, I can't buy, I'm used to buying sandwiches. I can't buy sandwich meat. They're not making it with matzah. So I kind of created the, I mean, basically you eat like crackers and cheese all week is what I felt like, you know, because you can't buy cheese and meat at the same time and all this stuff. And so it's just very, very, very different uh, living there and and seeing that being practiced. And then uh, uh, right after that, on the heels of that is first fruits. And I didn't really notice anything about first fruits uh, living there. But one, one aspect, um, I mean, you talked about first fruits and, and how uh, Christ is the first fruits and, and, and so on that explains in the New Testament. Uh, but then the days go by, 50 days, and it's, it's Pentecost, and, which is Shavuot. And Shavuot is, a, is an amazing uh, holiday in its significance, and you can go to, to uh, synagogue services or believers who, who worship there, who, who still celebrate it. And one of the aspects that is just incredible was a teaching that I heard was that during Shavuot, because of what Leviticus takes place, is the celebration also of God giving the Torah at Sinai and speaking it out. And that's what that festival is partially celebrating. And according to tradition, again, this is tradition, that 
the uh, that God, when He gave the Torah, He gave it in seventy languages simultaneously. Now, why seventy languages? Seventy is a symbol. Seventy is a symbol of every language. So, when God gave the Torah, He did give it to the whole world to accept, in a sense. But only the Jewish people accepted it. And in their, even according to tradition, the Jewish people accepted it under threat. It says that God lifted up the mountain, put the people under it, and threatened them to crush them, basically, unless they accepted it. And, of course, all of this is meant to be allegory to explain you know, the way God works. Now, this is what's interesting, is that the mountain, when God came at Pentecost... There was the languages, it went out and they preached the gospel in every language so the people could hear. And if you were Jewish at that time, and, and that's why they recorded it in such a way, it would hit. It would hit that the, this is what God is doing. He's completing what we've been talking about all these years. So there's a lot of real, it's kind of like a 3D depth. It's like seeing a movie and then you see a movie in 3D and see it in all the depth and it goes real deep. That's what really understanding some of the Jewish holidays and some of the Jewish thought uh, that, that was surrounding when the New Testament was written is very specific. And, and we see that um, coming into the fall festivals and um, w- during Rosh Hashanah, which is the new year. But it's interesting because the new year is actually Passover. So which one is it? Is it Passover? Is that the new year? Well, they, the Jewish people say there's a religious new year and then there's a civil new year. And, and one represents more of the internal renewal. And the other new year is more of a national reality, a national holiday, an awareness. Uh, so Rosh Hashanah means head of the year. And we, we often call it Feast of Trumpets. Because that's when they blow the shofar. Now, the shofar are really long ram's horns. They're not, you know, and they, they're really loud. And it's very interesting, unique sound. And he, he spoke a little bit about how that is really, I mean, you can hear it on Rosh Hashanah because you hear those horns everywhere. You can just imagine those trumpets being blown and Christ returning. I mean, that's the way I felt there. You could just hear it all day long, the, the, the shofars being blown. And they sh- blow them in a certain way, and they all have meaning, and they have, you know, lots of, lots of depth to, to it and, and everything else. Um, but it's just an incredible time to hear that. And then it goes right into Yom Kippur and the Day of Atonement. And one of the uh, interesting parts of, of the Day of Atonement is it is solemn. And it is incredibly quiet. So you have, uh, for example, the evening of Yom Kippur, you have services and so on. And in Israel, everything shuts down. Not only does everything shut down, taxi cabs shut down. Usually on Sabbath, normal Sabbath, there's still taxi cabs. But on Yom Kippur, they actually block off the streets. And you think, oh, wow, you know, everyone's quiet and at home. Actually, they're all outside. They're walking. They're with their families. They're talking. They've come from prayer services. And they're all dressed in white. So has anyone been to Israel during Yom Kippur? Yes. And they're dressed in white, right? Oh, they're not. 
it's a mixed bag. In, Jer- in Jerusalem, there's quite there's enough to be able to block off, but across Israel, you know, they they, they talk about you know secular versus religious. Not a lot of Israelis are really religious in the sense that they follow all of this. Um, I, I was fortunate to be in an area where I could watch a lot of this, and so that was really cool. But if you're in Tel Aviv or some, you know, they're, they're driving, they're they're riding around and so on. They might take a time, you know, to be with their families and so on. They see it as a holiday, kind of like um, the way, you know, most of the world sees Christmas or Easter or so on. But, you know, and they recognize it to an extent, but maybe not to the extent that I'm explaining. Very good to, to highlight that. Um, but uh, during Yom Kippur, and in fact, speaking of externally focused, we went with uh, uh, Jeff Ward and I were invited right over here to the Orthodox uh, uh, synagogue uh, just about a mile away from here and got to experience the first part of Yom Kippur. And he just walked away. He was like, I mean, it's just scripture after scripture after scripture, asking God, you know, or laying out uh, repentance. And because it is scripture, like what uh, Bobby's been saying all along, is that it's always been about God doing the work. It's always about God doing the work of forgiveness, of, of responding uh, to faith and what his grace is, that he's the one that's doing it all. And, and it says that over and over. If, if it weren't for you, oh God, we could not be even forgiven. If it weren't for you, we couldn't be renewed and so on. There's, there's scripture and songs that they do on, on Yom Kippur. And then at the end of that, it goes into Sukkot. And Sukkot is a, a fun, very fun festival. They, have, they build booths. Uh, and they, you know, now they have all kind of rabbinic things. But the main idea is you can't build a booth that's too good. You have to, it's got to be wobbly. It can't be too strong. Uh, you've got to put branches up, and you can't be so covered that, that you can't see the stars through the branches. And the idea is, is that you're to remember your total, absolute dependence upon God. And that is the point. You're not supposed to have a shelter that will shelter you from the storms. You're not supposed to have something that will even stand if a strong wind blows. So the idea is is that you're supposed to be there at a time of absolute dependence, remembering not only the time of Egypt, but this is who you really are. And one one uh, really cool aspect of that is uh, picking up the uh, they pick up. These what they call the elements, which is several branches and then a citron. And the three branches that they pick up, uh, there's different aspects about each one of those branches. And one is, is that, you know, and they have lessons to them. One branch has a great fragrance, but it bears no fruit. Another branch represents a tree that bears fruit, but has no fragrance. And then another branch has no fragrance and no fruit. However, the citron represents both fragrance and fruit. And they teach, you know, this is the way you're supposed you know, be, is have the fragrance of God, which you can't earn, but also uh, allow the fruit to grow out of your life. So I, I love those little lessons that kind of stick in your head and, and really carry along and help you understand scripture a lot better. Um, and so that goes through that. But one thing about Sukkot is it actually says in Zechariah that at the time of the Messiah, that if there is not a portion of every nation who goes up to Israel, 
and I'm, I'm thinking that this is when Jesus is reigning, maybe in the thousand years, then they will not, if a portion of the nations, if they don't send a portion to uh, Jerusalem for Sukkot, then it doesn't rain in their land for one year. And so we, we, we'll see these feasts, and that's why he was talking about earlier, the fall feasts really have a strong uh, symbolism for the Messiah. And the Jewish people today, or the religious Jews, do believe that. Uh, they believe that, that uh, these festivals really have a strong indication of, uh, of that. And then if, if I can kind of tie two things together, kind of Yom Kippur and uh, Year of Jubilee, when Jesus is preaching in, um, is it Matthew, I want to say 1333, Matthew 1333, you can check on it, you correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Matthew 1333, where uh, Jesus, no, no, it can't be that far I'm, I'm mixing those up. Uh, but when he gets up and he, and he speaks in the synagogue, this is in Luke, when he speaks in the synagogue and he, and he reads the portion and it, says, it talks about the year of, our, uh, year of the Lord's favor, uh, when he gets up and he reads the scroll at the beginning, all the people get upset because he says, this is fulfilled in your hearing. They get upset and they run him out of the synagogue and they go and it says they're going to throw him over a cliff. And, but yet, you know, he, they, he, they don't run him over a cliff. But what was incredible is, is when he, he speaks of the Jubilee, he speaks of a, an eternal Jubilee, and they go to do that, and, and it immediately sets up the symbol of, of the scapegoat, the goat that they literally, yearly, run off a cliff with the sins, you know, that they release and run off a cliff with the sins of the nation. And so you, you see that constantly within the Gospels where they take these symbols, they take these elements, and they, and they bring out, well, I, I don't say they, God really brings out a filling, a fulfillment of what has been happening all along in this show-and-tell process uh, that God created in order to speak to us and speak about his grace, speak about his provision, speak against our own self-sufficiency, speak against uh, really our own pride and our own, our own desires, and really to take that time to turn all of those aspects over to him, which is... Holiness. So there you go. Yeah. There Good you job, go. buddy. Well done. Thank you. All right. Here, why don't you just put that? All right. Hey, um, that's a great way to put some flesh on what we've been talking about from the pages of Leviticus. So, Andrew, great job. Thanks for sharing your insights on that. And as we close, the final step is that we want to commit to take action. And so, two weeks ago, I asked you to uh, think about. So what in your life you need to put on the altar. And so I want to just take, we still got three or four minutes, and I want to just uh, give us a, a couple of minutes of silence to simply um, give you an opportunity to do business with God, to say, hey, Father, what parts of my life do I need to give you? And um, let's just spend some time in prayer as we want to be people who put our lives as living uh, sacrifices uh, on the altar before God. You know, um, Romans 12, 1 says that we're to present our lives, present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is our spiritual worship. 
It's what the book of uh, Leviticus is about, and it's what we're to be about as believers in Christ. So let's take a couple of minutes to pray, and then I'll close this. Father, one of the things we learn from the book of Leviticus is not just that you're holy, but that uh, you want the very best from us. And so, Father, um, help us use what we've learned about Leviticus uh, to just reinforce the idea that you care about our hearts, that you want all of us, that you want us to be totally yielded to the leading of your Spirit, and that we can uh, indeed present ourselves as living sacrifices to you. Um, Father, your holiness is uh, something that uh, is overwhelming, and yet you call us to be holy just as you were holy. And Father, like uh, um, um, the the picture of uh, um, one of the feasts in which we uh, can do nothing uh, to bring about our forgiveness of sins on the Day of Atonement, that you do all the work. You also, Father, uh, are the one who uh, um, is, through the leading of your Spirit, uh, allows us to uh, um, approach you um, even in the midst of your holiness, that you tell us that we can boldly come before the throne of grace to make our petitions known. And so our heart's desire today, Father, is to be totally committed to you and to take the truths we've learned from uh, the book of Leviticus and translate them into uh, uh, daily action in our lives, that we might live holy lives totally consecrated and set apart to you. So thanks for each one of these folks who have uh, uh, stuck it out through uh, four weeks of Leviticus. And um, Father, may you uh, continue to equip them to be your hands and feet in the midst of a uh, dark and lost world. So thanks for this time, and thanks for the privilege of uh, uh, studying your word and calling you our Father. Amen. All right, gang, it has been a privilege to uh, stand before you for each of the last four weeks. So I'm grateful for y'all to, to keep coming. And um, we're already talking about uh, what we might do with uh, Sticky Pages next year. We'll be back in the New Testament. That may be good news for some of you. Uh, but uh, um, we're still trying to decide what we might do uh, uh, for next year. But it will uh, likely be some portions even of the New Testament that you don't go to very much. Because remember, the goal here is to open portions of the Scripture that we just don't uh, travel in very much on a um, constant sort of basis. So thanks for sticking with us in Leviticus, and go enjoy some summer fun, and happy Fourth of July to all of you.